So that was the last event that we we did. Um, and then, yeah, you just see everything just wash out your book. So you're talking millions of dollars, just go bang, see you later. Um, which was really scary and, you know, um, we didn't know where we'd be and what we'd do. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There's been somewhat of a reoccurring theme among some of our guests in Deep in the Weeds of, of leaving home, taking on the world and returning and bringing back a wealth of experience. What's it like returning to an area that helped build the foundations for your career? Tony Panetta is the owner and chef of The Woodhouse in Bendigo. Tony, how are you? Good, thanks, Huck. Thanks for having me. It's great to get you on the show. You've uh, done a lot of things in your career. We might need a 10-part episode to cover them all. But, you, you know, it was many moons ago that you are in Bendigo, but now you're back. Yeah, it seems a little bit surreal at times. But, um, yeah, it's, it, I'm back and it's, it's nice to be back. How different is Bendigo to what you remember all those years ago? Oh, it's, it's, it's a little bit weird at times when you drive around. Like, I don't know the street names anymore. Um, I've been back, I've been back for a year and I just, you know, just navigate from memory, I suppose. So they're all still there. But um, look, Bendigo has gone from a 60,000 population when I left to 170,000 now. So it's, um, it's probably exploded. It's probably one of the most um, rapid growing cities in Victoria. So it's um yeah it's 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 great to be back and it's thriving. Well, you you were at the sort of helm of you know some of the biggest food operations in the country, if not the biggest. Um, what's it like, sort of going back to such a small scale like this with the Woodhouse? Oh look, if I could sum it up in one word, it's personal. Um, probably it's always been, like my whole career has always been about you know creating that hospitality experience for somebody and um, being personal but um, you know even when it was as you said you know the masses you know everything was still personal it still had to be put on the plate for with an intent for that person to think that it was personal so you know moving back here to the woodhouse it's um you know, it's it's ironic because I helped um, renovate this place 11 years ago with my partner Paul um, when he opened it by himself so you know I've got photos of 11 years ago of the kitchen and I'm hanging the stainless steel and etc and it was um you know a great little project and you know I came up on weekends and I was running the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre at that time and it was um it was just you know I'm so I was so proud of Paul to be doing his own thing and you know full circle round and here I am with him. How did did it come about so tell us about sort of the conversation and, and what lured you to the Woodhouse? Oh look I you know I was in Sydney late last year, or last year, early last year, and um, I went down to um, Mornington, so out down to the peninsula, and um, I, was, I started working for Scott Pickett, and I did a project for him, and I had to open a place, a venue, and then um, I got talking to Paul at, you know, after it was open, and Paul wanted to either move aside and sell the venue or, yeah, entertain myself coming into the venue. So um, he tried for 10 years, and... Here I am. <laughs> Ten years later, I'm here. So, well, I want to explore what you what you are doing there, and and sort of the impact that it's had on you, the big sort of change. But take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family growing up? 
Oh, look, I'm I'm Italian, so my, my both my parents are um, born in Calabria in Italy, in southern Italy. So, um, you know, fa- food and, and family mean everything. I mean, my dad used to work, but so did my mother. But, um, you know, we always had a garden. So, you know, I was looking through photos when you come back to Bendigo. My mother still lives here and my, and my sister. And I see photos all the time and they remind me of um, yesteryear. And, you know, it's all, all the photos are in the garden. So it just dawned on me the other day that, you know, there's my nonno and nonno and they're in the garden with us holding us as children. So the garden really played a big part in the family and, um, you know, what was cooked and, you know, some early memories of, you know, pasta broccoli and things like sitting on the window ledge with the window open so it would cool it down for us. Um, So just those little, you know, it was just all governed by what was there and then on the day and you know and mum to this day still does it so it's um it's always a treat going to see mum and doing that so you know mum was my big inspiration early on to you know have you know dip my toe in the water I suppose and and try cooking but um we had a family business in Heathcote when I was little as well and when I was like 10 years old and I used to work in that. I can remember carrying drinks in a wheelbarrow and filling up the fridge and, you know, cooking burgers with mum and, you know, pizzas and that. So, you know, it was always sort of instilled into us. Tell us a little bit about um, the food of Calabria. You know, the food across Italy is so different depending where you are, but what, what sort of, you know, exemplifies that cuisine of Calabria the best for you? Oh, the peasant food. Um, it, it really is, and the older I get, the more I realise. And it's just simple. It's like you know, get a product that's really nice, and you know, like you know, an eggplant from the garden, and just cook it. And cook it simple. So, mum, mum's notorious for making zucchini flowers and um, zucchini flower patties and eggplant patties, um, and simply so they're like a potato dumpling and such that you fry and you put anchovies inside it and obviously the kids don't have the anchovies inside them because they're not quite developed yet but um yeah it's it's just simple food like every so 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 often in the year we'll have ex, you know like the sippity come out the you know the the t- t- green tomatoes for instance you know everything is used in that garden so it's um it's a great little journey, I suppose. You know, olives at the moment. Mum's just got olives. She's got a few olive trees. Um, so, yeah. T- tell us about your first steps into a career in hospitality. Was that something you were always going to do? And what was it like? Oh, okay. <laughs> it was. I mean, look, um, I'm, I think I'm a kinetic learner. I'm not one that sit down in a classroom. I used to <laughs> cause a bit of trouble. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so... You know, I can remember at school, in, I think year eight, I actually took the home economics class and taught them how to make pizza, um, you know, and that sort of still sits with me and it was sort of probably the, you know, I can do this scenario. Um, I was never very good at um, at English writing and that, but I was really good at maths and I think um, that's what I really enjoyed and um, so it sort of, you know, led you into the journey of, you know, getting get some food and uh, getting into the food industry. And back then, uh, late 80s, it was it was tough. It was really hard to get an apprenticeship because none were around. So I'd actually travel for mine. So I went to Mildura Grape Picking one year when I finished school and I knew a few people and wacko, I got a, landed myself an apprenticeship and got signed up. Do you have any stories of what it was like in those first couple of years um, compared to sort of that food upbringing that you had? 
Oh, look, the f- oh, look, I was in Mildura for the first part of my apprenticeship, so about nine months, and then I moved to Melbourne. So the rest of it I did in Melbourne. Um, um, so it was it was great to be in Melbourne where, you know, this it's so multicultural, you know, that there's so many diverse cuisines there. And, um, you know, obviously I probably went a bit safe and stuck to a little bit of Italian stuff, um, found it a bit familiar, you know, built relationships with people, but... It was um, it was hard. It was you know it was back when I don't know if I can be politically correct, but it was back when it was tough. You know, like anything went. Um, so you know you clean, you work twelve, sixteen hours a day, and um, it was it was great. As you started to build your career, who were the really sort of important people that helped you um, carve a path? Oh, there's probably two parts of that. So obviously, you know, mum was a big leading inspiration for passion and, and getting started. But Paul's father, Gary Pitcher, he was probably the one that really shone through and taught me ethics. So all my school holidays and um, all the time I had off, I used to, you know, on Saturdays I used to work with him. He used to have a hire business. And, you know, it's just the little things like, you know, it was seven degrees in the morning at seven o'clock and, he, you know, he'd hit your hands and go, take them out of your pockets. You look disinterested. You know, and just all these little life lessons that you, you got and, you know, 40 years later, you still remember these things. And um, it sort of taught you the, you know, the, the work ethic that you really need to survive and, you know, and become something. Somebody. Um, so, you know, that was sort of the inspiration to move into it and teach me some things. But, you know, there's, you know, in regards to chefs, I mean, there's chefs that inspire me today that um, keep going. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, great friends, I suppose, and great partnerships out there that I have with um, people. And, you know, there's, you know, my latest would have been probably Scott Pickett. You know, he's, he's a very, eclectic interesting man he's uh, he's amazing <laughs> he's the way he thinks is no one else does you know so i it was a true true honor to you know be side by side with him for over a year so i enjoyed that time you spent a lot of your career in in melbourne um tell us tell us sort of how you built your career up because you know that you ended up being executive chef of the convention center there, um, but h- how did you get to that? Yes, um, well, it's I always say to people, you don't, you know, start out to be the biggest, run the biggest venue, and that it's, you know, it's you've got to get some skills in that. So, I think for me, you know, I did a lot of um, cafes and restaurants, and and then you know, brought into a, a pub in Williamstown. Um, and did that for a few years, which was which was really um, interesting. But then I, was, I moved to a venue called Aiken Hill, and it was a privately owned venue, and it was two hundred packs max, and you know. But it was, if I could say it out loud, there was no budget to the food, so we could do whatever we wanted. So it was, yeah. So it was it was great back then. But you know, so you'd cook, you know, and and scratch that itch all the time, and you know, you teach yourself a lot of things because. During my time there, I was there for nearly ten years. I um I learned how to um you know see the venue, I, and then I became executive chef after a few years of that venue and ran that for five years. And you know it's just a system, and it's just know how to cook, know how to plate, know what you've got, and then you scale it up. And that's what you know. Walking away from that um, after the, that stint, I was there. I, I went to the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. Um, it was, you know, just apply the same philosophy 
and just, you know, you have the tools and the equipment just to scale up. So if it's 200 or 1,000, you just times it by five. <laughs> well, I th- I'm sure it's uh, not as simple as that. And I want to get to the convention center shortly. But take us back to Aiken Hill. I mean, having a license to kind of almost do what you want, what impact did that have on the sort of ingredients and your understanding and connection with producers? Oh, look, it was it was quite, um, quite amazing because I could buy – within reason, of course, whatever you wanted. And, um, you know, like I can remember doing parties for the owners of the venue and, um, you know, we'd, get, we'd, we'd go to Flinders Island and get crayfish, you know, flown in for us and, and things like that. It was not lifestyle of the rich and famous, but it was, it was definitely um, well, well and truly up there. And it was, you know, like you don't realise the impact until later on that, you know, you had a, a kettle full of, you know, $10,000 worth of lobsters and, the move to the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, it's such a big scale operation. Give us a sense of, of what that scale is, like how many people, what's, you know, how much food, what's, how many meals, like what, what is the size of what you were doing there? Uh, it was it was a massive step up from Aiken Hill. Um, so we the Melbourne Convention Exhibition. So we did um, you know I've done functions there of up to ten thousand people stand up, and that was like one particular. That was a, an AIDS conference. You know, it was worldwide. Um, I think the biggest difference is it's the international market that comes in. So I can remember doing like a lot of like even sit down aim uh, Amway functions. So they were like four. 4,000 people and 5,000 people. So that's just the person coming in. And then you've got to times and scale up, you know, that's, you know, 15,000 pieces of cutlery and, you know, that's that's so much plates and, um, you know, the canapes and et cetera, you know, the units and pieces that you need to make and produce for that is, is, you know, it's pretty, you know, in the tens of thousands. So we used to move like entire kitchens to, you know, into the exhibition building if we had to cater for things like that. And I'm talking a dishwasher and all, like a conveyor belt dishwasher used to move with us. So, you know, just so you could wash the dishes on site because, you know, obviously logistics and um, moving things around cost you a lot of money. So we could, you know, pop up kitchens anywhere. And that, I think, was the key to um, the success of convention centres, you know, being able to be adaptable. Dietaries can throw a small restaurant out on a, any given night. Do you have any stories of the crazy sort of dietaries and how you manage them in on such a large scale? Oh, dietaries! Oh, look, <laughs> um, look, we did a lot of work around dietaries in the sense of um, analysing and um, recording information from them. But you know, it basically makes up about. 23, 24% of your um, group. So if you've got 1,000 people, there's 240 dietaries. So um, look, that's how it initially started at, at MCEC, but moving to Sydney to ICC, what we adapted in the end, we had to, was, um, uh, you know, we tried to remove the food style choice, so the vegetarians and the vegans, and just really said, you know, with, you know, with being totally honest, if I can kill you, I want to know. You know, so it was it was the anaphylactic side of things that was really the focus, um, because you know the celiacs and and that you'd always have um, your menu engineered around that, so you, you'd have adaptability. But it's the um, it's the ones that um, can you know sort of be put into a hospital are the ones that are really big concern to us. 
You um, made the move from Melbourne to Sydney to the International Convention Centre there. Um, tell us about that change and that move. And w- was it was it different? The you know the venues. Were, did you have to treat things differently? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, you know, it's it's. I look back on it now, and I just got married in February, and um, in August we went to Sydney, and um, you know we left left Melbourne, my wife and I, and um, just my wife and I, and um, I had two children in Sydney, and so you know Sydney sort of has that sort of little home to us, but um, you know to treat Sydney um, was totally different. It was worlds apart, different city. You know Melbourne has you know that great you know, multicultural. Sydney has that sort of, you know, seaside, beachside, you know, diverse culture that's up there as well. But, um, to, you know, Sydney was, um, it was a pre-opening, obviously. So we had to, we, I spent 15 months before the opening event um, building a team. I was person number two. So in my department, so I had... Lenelle Peck, who was my director and still is the director um, of culinary at Sydney. And, you know, it was her and myself. And, you know, I can remember going to lunch with her in the first week and sitting there going, well, fast forward a year and there's, you know, 170 staff more and um, we're starting to do test events. But, um, you know, 15 months sounds like a long time, but it actually isn't. You know, it would have been good to have two years um, to build what we built in Sydney was, um, I think, phenomenal for the time that we, we had. You know, I saw supplies. I f- flew to Pambula and Marimbula and, you know, met with oyster suppliers directly and, um, you know, learnt, learnt about, you know, the education. You know, even good old Marty Bortz there, it was, um, you know, went and brought veggies from himself at Cook's Co-op and, you know, just met and, you know, had formed such great relationships, you know, because it's all, you know, intertwined. So it's all sort of connected in, um, you know, one supplier knows the next supplier. And, you know, one one chap in particular, um, Pierre Pepisaya, he introduced me to so many people. It was um, it was phenomenal because I knew uh, Pepe from, from Melbourne. So I always started buying his butter down when I was in Melbourne. And I thought, great, I've already got my butter sorted in, in Sydney. So I reached out to Pierre and wacko, we got that going. And then, yeah moved on that's the extraordinary thing about sort of what you achieved with both convention centers was you know people think about scale and they don't necessarily think that quality fits into that but you managed to sort of have this amazing connection with producers and a real passion for working with the best producers on such a big scale tell us a bit about that and what drives you to sort of go down that path yeah i think like i said it's all personal i I love I love the fact that I could call a person and not type to a person. So, you know, you could ring, you know, Greg from Block 11 and say, Greg, what's going on this week? You know, oh, these are dropping and that's coming and that's – and you'd work your menu around that. I know, you know, like our menus were so structured at convention centres, you know, that's just a guide. It really is just a guide. I mean, we rather jump on the seasonality of produce and and do that. Um, you know, for myself, I, you know, I spend a lot of time meeting people and, and talking and, and being the conduit in that relationship between the chefs and the supplier and making, you know, the produce, you know, come in logistically. And, um, you know, we used to 
pay all our accounts on seven days with all these smaller suppliers being such a big business we still did have that commitment to them because we understood cash was king and cash flow to small businesses um, can make and break you so we identified all their pain points and tried to work with them and um, you know even use their byproducts as such you know to to help them you know move into different parts of their business or, or adapt their business to different things so um, it was it was very rewarding for myself personally to do and um, you know out of I can remember the first full year that we were there that we spent roughly 11 million dollars on food nine and a half million of that went straight to New South Wales growers you know so that percentage was you know and that was so satisfying like all our meat seafood everything used to come from um, New South Wales and you know most of our fruit and veg so we used to report on that as well which was um, yeah just satisfying really great You've been involved in so many large-scale sort of events through years with the different convention centres. Do you have a favourite or crazy event that you can tell us about? Oh, look, I have a favourite event. I probably do, and I, I thought about this the other day, and um, it's called Cyboss, and it was a um, a banking, um, like the world, every bank in the world, and it's run by a company called Swift, and all they do is um, sell Nothing. So they sell air. You can't see what they sell. So it's all banking transfers. Okay. So you're talking the biggest banks in the world and everything. But um, what really shone to me was their investment in their success. So the year before, you would host it. You know, internationals are three years out generally. You know, you've got them. Um, the year before, they'd send you, they'd pay, you know, the chef, the food and beverage attendant, um, and et cetera. And they'd fly to the one that's going on the year before. So in our case, it was um, Toronto. So we got to go to Toronto for five days and have back, backstage tickets, you know, access all areas and, and learn because they wanted you to be successful, obviously. So, um, and that was great. And I thought, you know, you give that extra percent because, you know, they're investing in you. So you want to invest in them. And, um, you know, most chefs are very competitive. So we like to be the best. And uh, yeah, definitely. We, we, had that in Sydney. Um, I think there was about 5,000 delegates all up, but it was monster catering. So it was anything and everything, you name it. It was over the top. So they had sole use of the International Convention Centre, so three city blocks. Um, the whole premises they had, it was security because obviously it's banking. And, um, yeah, it was we at the end of the day – so. They have, if you've been to an exhibition, there's all these stands. So every stand had catering as well. So, you know, you, you're talking, I think we had like 400 orders in a day, you know, and you've got to deliver 400 different orders. That's not 400 plates. That's, that could be 50,000 plates. So, you know, it was just at a very high magnitude. So, um, you know, because like I said, that they're selling nothing. Well, people can't see what they're selling. So they try and outdo each other. So, you know, we had caviar packs going out, you know, like they'd buy a tin of caviar for $4,000 and, you know, so it was just all, you know, look at me, look at me. Um, so it was, it was, it was phenomenal because people brought great things and, you know, it was, it was um, really rewarding for us. And, you know, we had reefer containers sitting there and we'd have transition areas so we'd make the food it was just like it's like a machine just like a production machine so you'd make it take it to the reefer that next team would dispatch it next team would pick it up you know so it just went on and on and on 
And on opening morning on that particular event, I still do remember the fire alarm went off. So we all had to evacuate. <laughs> and, it's, you know, and that 20 minutes just takes it out of your day. So it was, um, yeah, quite memorable. But, yeah, very, very great, uh, awesome event to be involved. I think it's fascinating that you said that, like, with the international events, you kind of know three years out that sort of they're booked in and, and they're coming. But, you know, COVID sort of shifted everything in the food world and everything in the world. Well, you know, with such a, a venue, with so reliant on those big events, what sort of impact did it have on you? Oh, it's massive. Um, when COVID hit, we were still operating and... Um, Obviously, no, the world didn't know what was going on. And I can remember we had just begun these duty manager roles. So, you know, I was obviously executive chef, senior manager. But what we did was involve that line, so my line of people, into um, being the duty manager for the whole venue. And I actually got that shift. So I'll never forget, it was there was a conference in that day, um, a rather large Australian conference, and... Um, they were getting pressure from outside to close and obviously no one knew what world was about to go in lockdown. And, um, yeah, that was it. So that was the last event that we we did. Um, and then, yeah, you just see everything just wash out your book. So you're talking millions of dollars, just go bang, see you later, um, which was really scary and, you know, um, we didn't know where we'd be and what we'd do and obviously bigger venues, higher risks. So with the impact on us as a department or as a business would have been longer. Um, so, you know, it was there was a lot going on and, um, you know, as the months went on, changes had to be made and, you know, I never envisaged myself standing there, standing down staff and... Um, it probably, you know, I still think about that and it sort of makes me quite sick to actually think that, you know, that was part of it where you had to sort of sit back and really, you know, try and switch off your feelings, I suppose, and and just deliver it. And, um, you know, these are people I worked with for five years half the time, but, um, you know, we were sort of sitting back, um, like, you know, we're not sitting back, we were there laying people off and... Um, standing them down and then with one day hopefully returning. But, you know, that was a good, I don't know, six to eight-month patch of um, uncertainty. But, um, but you know, out of that, you know, there was no satisfaction. There was, you know, people were looking at, you know, where to, what to, and you could only just provide what you knew. You know, for myself, I we all went down to reduced hours. Um, you know, I don't – we're getting no, you know, stimulation, I suppose, from our jobs like most people, um, which probably drove me to find stimulation. Um, and uh, I, you know, I thought I'd do myself some, uh, get myself a little side business going. <laughs> so, um, so off I went to um, start a taco cartel business. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, look, Taco Cartel was probably my life saviour at that stage because, as I probably alluded to, I didn't really have satisfaction or stimulation. So um, myself and my PA, Bell, we um, we started, 
you know, I started doing these tacos at home and then we just grew it and went, okay, let's go to Potts Point Market. So we researched it and, you know, got in. Cut a long story short, we started doing Saturday markets at Potts Point and had really good following. And it was so much fun, you know, I'd hire a little caddy on the weekend and we'd fill it up and we'd go and do it. You know, you'd work four or five hours, meet people though, you know, it was just, you know, like, like, we're all aware of, you know, food's culture and, you know, I never thought I'd be making tacos for Mexicans. And um, they love it, the passion and, you know, the way it was. You know, I only did one taco. It was a Bria taco. Um, but it was just fun and it just took, you know, the light off everything that was going on in the world, I suppose, and it felt normal. And, um, you know, there was no rules. You know, and I think that was the big thing for me at that stage, you know, the no rules scenario. Did, did that sort of upheaval and that change um, affect your decision to sort of leave the ICCS and um, sort of go back to restaurants? Yeah, it did look, it did partly. I'd definitely say it was partly, had part of the decision. Um, I think... Um, my style is not to um, – my, my style, my approach to, to building teams and that is to share. Um, so I could never actually sit there and not, you know, create my succession plan. And um, I had uh, 2IC Dylan and he was he was an absolute gun. He's better than me. And um, I groomed him for, you know, since day dot really to take over my role one day. And I don't know if it was timing. I don't know if it was the world's aligning. But, you know, I – you know, got a, had a conversation with Scott and, you know, that was sort of on the card. So I thought, you know what, it's probably time. You know, if I can't do much more where I am now, um, there was no step up for me there. There was no, um, you know, it was a big company I worked for, ASM Global, but um, there was no, you know, group role as such to go into. And um, I thought, well, you know, Victoria, see my mum, you know, be a little bit closer, a little bit more intimate. So, yeah, I just thought, you know, Dylan has that opportunity. I think it was my responsibility to do that as well. And, um, yeah, I took off and took the role with um, Scott Pickett. How, 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 does it, how did it make you feel sort of going from that such a large-scale environment and back into something a bit more intimate? Did it have an impact on you? Yeah, look, it does. And I think, um, as you probably said, there's, there's a couple of steps to it all. And um, I think... Going back down, you know, there's mixed emotions. Um, you know, the support is great, you know, in those bigger organisations where you've got multiple people to support. But um, stepping back in the restaurant, it, you know, for me, like going from ICC and having tacos on the side and things like that, it probably helped me. Um, I'm, you know, I don't mind talking to people. I'm not scared as a chef and I want to hide behind the past so much so I'm happy to sit out and talk to people so it was great for that I enjoyed um, you know the Conti side of things was um, talking seeing people opening you know doing ICC on a much smaller scale I suppose um, you know it was yeah I, I enjoyed probably the the thing that pushed me towards it was the people Tell us a little bit about the Woodhouse and and what you what you're cooking there. Are there. Is there a dish or two that really kind of exemplifies what you're doing? Yeah, look at the Woodhouse. We look. We're obviously based in Bendigo and um, Central Victoria, and the um, we as the title says, the Woodhouse. We we. 
specialise in uh, protein, so in in red meat, really. So you know, we use some great producers. Paul has got a you know great suppliers with Sherwagyu from uh, Vicky. You know, so we use a lot of her products. We dry age our own meat ourselves. Um, we also you know tap into the Anthony at Vic Meats as um, produce as well because we use a lot of Rangers Valleys and O'Connor brands as well just to um, push through the, the stakes that we have. So we've got a large amount of um, meat on the menu. We do have the vegetarian options as well, right, because um, everyone needs a little bit. But, you know, we're still trying. Um, you know, Paul's got such a passion for um, the meat side of things and I thought, well, my side of the bit business is that I try and bring everything else up on the menu to be that level as well. So we really work hard on, you know, the duck and the lamb and, you know, our entrees, our starters, you know, but we try and make everything, you know, fun, sustainable, you know, our produce that we use is top quality. Um, you know, we source, you know, I found a supply chain that can deliver me from Melbourne to Bendigo at a reasonable race so I can get anything I want now. So it's it's just fantastic, you know. Some of the seafood that we're getting, you know, from down in Melbourne is just phenomenal. Like we got some fresh Clarence River prawns last week, you know, extra, extra large ones. And no one gets that in, you know, in the middle of Victoria, it seems impossible to get. So we're really, you know, still continuing on that sourcing scale that, you know, we want to try and find the best produce. But, um, yeah, we're just a humble steakhouse that loves what we do. Tell us a little bit about uh, the region. You know, I, I know how much you love to connect with producers and how important that role is within the food that you create. Is there, is there any sort of um, producers of the region that you've managed to connect with? Um, it's, it's, it's been an a, um, interesting uh, start to my career at the Woodhouse because it, it's learn the business, like come in and learn the business. And, you know, Paul's got 11 years of knowledge that he had to impart. And um, so I've been like really into doing learning the business and learning that side of things and you know trying to get suppliers on board you know this the region's rich in like you know apples of course there's orchards there's lots of grapes and, and wine around this this way but there's also the littler suppliers and um you know like when i was at the big places i used to speak to big suppliers obviously with big farms and um my mum Obviously, he's here. <laughs> he grows a little patch of vegetables, and you know we got pistachio trees and olives and things like. That. And and I said to Paul, why don't we go out and pick them? You know, they're just sitting there. We could go and pick them because Mum's a little bit old now, and she can't sort of get out in a panic. And it's those sort of you know, you you go driving down a road and you see a hot house and you just drive in. Hey, what do you do? What's going on? And it's that approach that you know it's probably a little bit different to what I used to do um, and they're all friendly people so yeah look to name people I, I don't really have that but you know Paul already had an established you know McIver Farms pork and you know the Sherwagu and, and the Harcourt apples and, and things like that that we've already using it's just um, tapping into a little bit more and a little bit more little season like we've got a gentleman that just knocks on our back door with pine mushrooms you know when they're around and you know Here's some pine mushrooms. Would you like to use them? And, you know, people find you th through um, social media. And um, 
so we can get morels and things. So it's pretty. It's it's a pretty rich area. Well, you've done extraordinary things and delivered extraordinary meals to so many people. It's quite extraordinary, and I know you've got many more stories. But um, we'll have to catch up again sometime. It's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today, Tony. Please keep in touch, and we'll catch up again soon. Lovely. Thanks for your time. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.